0: You might be thinking of the term holy, holiness, holy ones in relationship to us as believers. Okay, we are referred to as holy ones. We are commanded to be holy for I am holy. Uh, God isn't demanding that we all of a sudden be something other than we are. Okay, we are less than God. We do not have perfect natures. God is perfectly aware of that. And so the command, therefore, is not to Stop being what you are and sort of cosmically change so that you're me. Okay, that that isn't the point. The point is live in such a way to reflect my character because you are my child. You know, do the best you can with that, knowing again that there's going to be failure. But it's really that, that the bigger communicative point is that you belong to me. Okay, you are part of my family, my entourage. You're in my service now. You are called to serve me. You are set apart from the world and you are part of my family to assist me in doing what I want done. That's really what it means to be holy. Now, if we take that seriously, we will live in a certain way. And God gives us not only laws and commands and principles, but he gives us examples, like Jesus would be the best one, of how to do this, how to reflect his character, how to be holy like he is holy. But none of that command language and just the language in general assumes that we're supposed to like turn into deities. That's just not the way it works. One of the more significant and controversial words the Old Testament uses for members, plural, of the heavenly host is Elohim. Now that might sound really odd because Elohim is used a couple thousand times for the singular God of Israel. And that is obvious from the text. That is in you know, most cases how Elohim is used, but it does occur in the context where a plural translation is required. Psalm 82 verse one is sort of the most obvious example where we have Elohim, God, capital G, standing in the midst of his council or his assembly. And in the midst of the gods, midst of the Elohim, he passes judgment. Now, the first one we know is singular because of the Hebrew grammar. And the second one we know should be translated plural because you can't be in the midst of a single entity, has to be a group. So you have Elohim used two times in the same verse but one is singular semantically, and one is plural as to its meaning. And there are people who get shook up about this, you know, that you keep reading in Psalm 82, and you get to verse 6, where God is speaking to these beings and says, I said to all of you, you, plural pronoun, are gods, Elohim. But you're going to die like men you know your sons of the most high you're elohim but you're going to die like men god's judging them he's going to punish them uh, for the crimes that are listed out in verses 2 through 5 in psalm 82. so we very clearly have a group now the problem is is that we're not used to writing out g-o and d and then putting an s on the end of it because in psalm 82 it's very obvious that these beings are real god is punishing them he's judging them Uh, We know that they're not idols or just men, why? Because in Psalm 89, we have another council reference, same language as Psalm 82, and the council is in the skies. Okay, this is where God lives. This is the spiritual world. We don't have a bunch of Jewish elders ruling from the skies, okay? It just doesn't make any sense, even though this is what is commonly done with the passage because G-O-D-S feels a little creepy. Now I'm a standard Trinitarian guy, I believe there's one unique Elohim that exists in three persons, but yet we have to recognize what the text says, that there are other Elohim. The trick is, or really the solution is, we have to realize that we are trained to see G, O, and D, and mentally we just default to that word means or points to a specific set of of unique attributes, and if the attributes are unique, things like sovereignty and omnipotence and omniscience, eternality, only one being by definition can have those attributes. And that's correct. It's absolutely correct. But that theology doesn't extend from the word Elohim, because Elohim is used by biblical writers of beings that are not the God of Israel, singularly and collectively. So how do we sort of make sense of this? It's actually pretty simple. Elohim is a term in Hebrew that biblical writers would use to identify a member of the spiritual world that is by definition a disembodied being. You're just a member of the spiritual world. It's kind of like a term you would use to label where a thing lives, okay? If you're Elohim, you live in the spiritual world. That's your domain. That's all it is. So in the spiritual world, think about the way we would normally talk about this. In the spiritual world, there are lots of Elohim. Members of the heavenly host are Elohim, all of them. Because why? They're members of the spiritual world. But only one of those, is Yahweh, only one of those has those unique attributes. There is only one. This is why God repeatedly says, there's none like me, there's none besides me. These are, these are, this is terminology of incomparability. So the God of the Bible is, to use the big academic word, ontologically unique. I like to say he is species unique. There is only one of those. Yahweh is an Elohim, but no other Elohim is Yahweh. So this is a term you might encounter in Bible study that is used, again, of the members of the heavenly host. So don't be bugged by it, (laughs) don't be frightened by it. It just refers to a member of the spiritual world. Elohim would be, again, one of those bucket one terms that this tells you what a thing is. Okay, a member of the heavenly host is by nature. Again, bucket one deals with what a thing is by nature. By nature, an Elohim is a member, a resident of the spiritual world, not the human world. So it tells you what a thing is, not necessarily rank, because lots of Elohim can be different ranks, and it's not a job description either. Let's just mention a few terms that would sort of be bucket two. This deals with rank and hierarchy. Scripture will often speak of the heavenly host uh, in terms of its members being sons of God. And I comment a lot in the book, and I've commented earlier, about how that is a rank term associated with the royal court. Again, the members of the king's family, and think sons of God, God is king. The members of the king's family are going to, by definition, constitute sort of a an inner circle, a higher level of the bureaucracy just because of their relations uh, you know, with the king. Collectively though, the members of the heavenly host to reflect this idea and you know, not necessarily the levels in the council, although it can, there are terms like council, assembly, court. Daniel 7 is kind of a useful example because the, the heavenly court meets in Daniel 7, 9 through 10. It actually uses this language. And there are, we're not told how many or, or who, you know, who gets this status, but the court is seated to pass judgment on the beasts in Daniel's vision. Well, they're also surrounded by others, you know, this myriad upon myriad of, of the, the, the heavenly hosts. So, Right there, you can see sort of a distinction between the judge, the Ancient of Days, and then the seated court, and then you know, everybody else that's, that's sort of in the room or in the scene. So, you know, it, it, again, it's a useful example to see how this kind of language can be sort of encompassing, but also can be used in certain contexts to denote sort of a, a, a special task force, a special level uh, of the bureaucracy that is, is about to make a decision. Another example would be 1 Kings 22, where God allows members of the heavenly host to participate with him in making a decision. Sometimes God will send one, okay, Daniel 4, to an individual. And and when we get into Daniel 4, you have an instance where a watcher, a holy one, brings a message to Nebuchadnezzar. And he actually tells Nebuchadnezzar, What's gonna to happen to you is by decree of the watchers, plural, but he also says it's by decree of the most high. The, it's important to realize that the court or the council or the assembly do not operate autonomously. Okay, they operate in tandem with the higher, the highest authority, and that would be God himself. Yeah, let's unpack the, uh, the third category, the third bucket a little bit. Again, I mentioned earlier that this is where Malach the Hebrew term for messenger shows up. This is where we get angel, because again, if, if that term is typically applied to humans, used of humans in scripture, then the translator is gonna go with messenger. And when the context in the translator's decision uh, refers to some otherworldly being, then they're gonna use angel. So this is where we get our term angel, but in reality, the term itself only means messenger. Another term, again, that I put in bucket three is seret, uh, just the idea of a minister. And this is the way English translations put it. But when we hear minister, we think, you know, somebody who stands up in front of us in church and preaches and whatnot. Uh, This is like to to sort of do ministry in the broadest, really even the vaguest sense. It's really service. You you could almost translate this servant to get the idea or at least help us get the idea. But there is this terminology used in Psalm 104, for for instance, that that angels are ministering spirits. Okay, this is what they do, they render service. They are spiritual beings who render service in the spiritual world to God. In that verse, in Psalm 104, the service rendered would be bringing or taking a message. So that's why you get the combination of terms. Obviously, uh, to minister or to serve, that's really broad. You can put a lot of other functions underneath that umbrella, and the malak, again, the messenger would be one of those. Another term that's really interesting is Aramaic gir, or girin, and that's the term that gets translated watcher, or the plural, watchers. Uh, this one's interesting because, on the one hand, scholars, you know, like to debate where this term actually comes from, sort of what its root meaning is. And there are those who think it comes from a verb to, that, that means to be watchful or to be awake. I mean, you have a, you have a, a difference there. And you say, well, what, what's the difference? Who cares? Well, if you opt for the, the meaning, the root meaning, and derivation of to be wakeful, like to never sleep, then that could conceivably be sort of a bucket one term. It tells you what a thing is. It's a being that never sleeps. But if you opt for the watching, actually the task or the duty, the service rendered, uh, then it's a bucket three term, which is where I put it in the book. I think that the case is better for that one. So what you have is you have a being whose service rendered to God is to watch. You know, whatever's going on, you know, on earth and wherever he's tasked to be, uh, you know, watching whatever that thing is or whatever, whoever those people are uh, to keep an eye on, essentially. And this is a a term that's pretty rare in the Bible. It's used only in Daniel 4, which is not the Aramaic portion, part of the Aramaic portion of Daniel. And there it is combined with a bucket one term, a watcher, that is a holy one. Okay, so you actually get this combination, one, one term that for sure tells you what a thing is, and then we've got another term that sort of denotes a task, what this Holy One does. But curiously enough, in this instance, the watcher, the one who's keeping watch, the Holy One, brings a message, but he's never actually called. <laughs> Uh, a, a Malak uh, in the passage, he never actually called an angel, but nevertheless he does the task and I, I think uh, the, the interesting point here is the way he sort of presents what 's going on. This message is a little bit different than a lot of your i don 't want to call them generic messages from angels because like that that 's not i mean that 's a pretty special event, but in the chapter, the watcher makes clear that this decision, Nebuchadnezzar, you're gonna go crazy for a while, so just get ready. Um, This this decision is by decree of the watchers. And then three verses later, it's by decree of the Most High. So apparently this is a group that, again, has a bit higher status than your ordinary angel. And so since we're dealing with Nebuchadnezzar and empire and, and all this sort of stuff, a member of the court, essentially, the elite, you know, decision-making class is actually tasked with, you're going to go and tell him, you know, what's going on here. Now, that's in turn important because in the Second Temple literature, watcher becomes a term that is more frequently used and, I think not coincidentally, it is used as a term to translate sons of God, which is that middle tier, you know, kind of language, that elite part of the bureaucracy.